Hello there, you're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Catherine Kelly, your host. Today, we are speaking with Adam Gluck, CEO and founder of Copia Automation, which builds DevOps tools to streamline operations, reduce downtime, and improve innovation and delivery of applications and services. Copia's flagship offering provides Git-based source control for multiple vendor PLC programming. Adam was an early hire at Uber, becoming the founding engineer for Uber's engineering strategy team. At Uber, Adam worked on multiple rewrites of Uber's driver's app that was distributed to millions of drivers each month and helped redesign Uber's overall microservice architecture. He founded Copia to bring the same best practices to the fundamental technology that runs industry. Adam was recognized in the 2022 class of Forbes 30 under 30 in the category of manufacturing and industry. He received a Bachelor of Arts Honors Degree in Sociology from the University of Chicago. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me here. Super excited to be on the show and be chatting with you about all these great topics. Can you share with our audience your journey from your role as a founding Uber architect, engineering architect, to your leading role now in transforming manufacturing with Copia Automation? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of how I talk about Uber and how it kind of ties into what I'm doing now is uh, Uber had this thing fits in atoms, uh, which is that, you know, you're using software to move things around in the real world. And as someone who came from more of a pure software um, angle, uh, that was one of the few companies that was really doing that in the early 2010. So it was hard to find a company that was doing pure software. And then, you know, for me, at least I actually like that really you, things were moving, you know, you, things were moving, you could order a car, people would take it, you know, bring the car to you, bring items to you, et cetera. There's this idea of like Uber, Uber for everything, you know, this idea that you could build these networks in cities, all of that was really exciting to me. And so that's what kind of drew me to Uber was the bits and atoms. I continue to kind of have that strong interest in, you know, these kind of core um, sets of, you know, functions. I viewed Uber as ultimately a logistics network. Um, and so, you know, I kind of stumbled across. Uh, so in my in the side, I was looking to robotics and do manufacturing to industrials because I kind of want to get more and more into that kind of core of how the economy actually functions. And I kind of stumbled across programmable logic controllers and the modern developer stack um, for industrial automation. And it seemed like there's a really big gap um, between what software engineers were doing and what the uh, average controls engineer was doing. So I, I kind of had this idea, well, let's bring those practices from the software world to the controls and automation world. And I started talking to controls engineers. And I was like, well, what are you all doing? You know, there, there must be something better you know, that that people are doing in this space because, you know, these are really fundamental systems. And a lot of people said, hey, this tooling is missing, you know, um, in the space. And one of the things that we realize is part of why it's missing is that it's a very fractured environment. There's a lot of, you know, heavy machinery. There's a lot of proprietary software used to code that heavy machinery. And so there is a space for a multi-vendor product that kind of sits on top of all of that and brings that workflow uh, into the space, which is how Copia came about. And what parallels do you see between your experience at Uber, uh, particularly in pioneering that microservices architecture and the challenges and opportunities in manufacturing? Yeah, I mean, so for me, at least, you know, and I guess there's no microservices per se, really, in the, the stuff that we do here. And it's funny because when I started Copia, you know, I had an investor say to me, they're like, well, you could easily start a cloud company. Why are you doing this industrial stuff? Uh, because I had that kind of background and, and pedigree and in, in doing that stuff and the stuff that we invented actually at Uber 
um, became domain-oriented microservice architecture and looked up and it's actually like cited in academic journals and all this interesting stuff. What we're doing is a little bit to the side of that. Now, where I do, do see architecture as being relevant in this case and why I found this area really interesting is when you're looking at robotics code, when you're looking at programmable logic controllers, when you're looking at sensors, when you're looking at all of this stuff, it's really where the rubber meets the road. It's the command and control layer of the industrial site. It's what actually runs the very logic of production. And what immediately was interesting to me is that that's the core thing, right? At the end of the day, you pull all your data out of this layer. It's really the like line between the, the cyber and the physical. Again, going back to the kind of bits and atoms theme. And so to me, that kind of really fundamental nature of this architecturally is why I thought it was an interesting layer to build at in a layer where we can continuously deliver value as a company as we grow and, and grow our product offerings and all of that stuff as well. Let's talk about the applications. Can you elaborate on Copia's um, mission to transform manufacturing through some of the challenges uh, that firms have, for example, with downtime, with product recalls, and with malfunctions? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the the big ways that we look at it, and this is actually a, a talk I gave at a, a trade show recently, is there's a well-known set of practices in the space around disaster recovery. And so basically, if you go to the plant floor and you talk to someone, they'll say, yeah, we need to have backups of our code. That's well understood in the same way that you have backups of your hardware sitting somewhere. And so that's the analogy. And people said, yeah, if, if a machine goes out, we need to be able to back it up. If code goes out, we need to back it up. So there's already this analogy in the industrial space of you have a backup and you recover from disasters if there's an, an issue. Um, and so that's great, right? Because you already have these best practices around, hey, there's an outage, we need to restore our state. Um, what we're trying to do is build proactive processes rather than reactive processes. So as opposed to having a, a bunch of backups, you say, hey, can we build a process? And it, it does land you with a backup <laughs> of what's there. Um, but you know, we're also doing code review. We're also maybe have a process for testing. We're, we're enforcing the, our process, you know, by having visibility into what's happening in the space. You really have visibility into the changes in the environment, and then you're controlling those changes by locking them down. And so right now you have a state of the world where anyone can push code changes basically to a you know device sitting at a plant floor as long as they're connected to the network. And you have a bunch of contractors often coming in. So you have a lot of people pushing changes with no visibility, no control over it. And we're really trying to bring that kind of proactive set of processes and that will reduce downtime. That'll also make teams more efficient because you feel safer in the changes you're making and you have a more collaborative process. And then ultimately that increases quality because ideally you're spending less time putting out fires and more time, uh, you know, actually building you know new interesting functionality or optimizing some process or setting up a new line. Or, or if you look at an organization at enterprise level, you're able to allocate your resources towards more strategic initiatives as opposed to pure maintenance, um, you know, with, within the organization. How are you partnering with automation companies to achieve these objectives? Yeah. So, I mean, we have over 100 customers now. We've been around for about, we've been funded for a, a little over three years. Um, we have over 100 customers, uh, I think like 11 countries, a couple continents. So we're all over, um, you know, and I'd say the the range of companies are from, you know, mom and pop system integrate, regional system integrator to, you know, Fortune 5 enterprise customer. Amazon just came out with a case study about some of the work we've been doing with them over there. Um, and so you really can kind of see this kind of broad spectrum of sorts of companies that that we ultimately have worked with. And then I'd say in terms of who we actually partner with in those organizations, you know, it's really 
starting with the value add at the plant level um, in terms of, you know, as I mentioned, disaster recovery, kind of this no brainer. And so there's organizations that go, how is how, do, how are we going to, what is our backup strategy going to be? How are we going to version these things? That's a well-known set of concerns um, in industrial companies that there's huge room for improvement on. And then you can kind of get into the, well, director level, how are we up-leveling this whole organization? Or even we had a conversation with the mid-market CEO the other day. And I said, well, you know, who can actually touch your code at these sites? You know, and he was like, well, that's really bad. Like, I actually don't know who can touch the code. So these missing governance and control, it's it's every industrial company is like this. There's actually a huge black hole in terms of who can actually touch. There's no visibility to who's actually touching the code at the plant level. So you have these multi-million dollar infrastructure projects and basically, and there's always some process. I'm not saying there's none. But there's very little visibility, very little uh, actual tooling in place to enforce those processes. And so people can really make changes and you don't really know what's actually running on your plant floor, which is a big problem in and of itself. <laughs> you know, even before you get outside of the does it break things or not, you know, obviously people break things, you know. That is an issue. Um, and uh, and so I, I, that that's interesting to me because I would think with... Uh, you know the advent of uh, or and the increased increased role in operations technology and and the uh, individuals who are are assigned to that that uh, and in the processes that are in place in manufacturing that that is uh, that is surprising to me that that you're finding that. Yeah, we see eighty percent of our customers use what we call the archive, not our customers of opportunities or companies that we talk to use an archive folder approach for backup, which means they copy paste and rename every change into a folder with no additional context. And so you basically have to hope that someone, when they made the change, went and copied their file, renamed it and that with the date appended to it. And then it's, it's like the same way that like, you know, your kids might manage a high school paper or college students might manage a high school paper, you know, is how people are managing their industrial code today. And you just have to hope that they, that, people follow the process, you know, there's no enforcement. So there are processes in place. And obviously the most advanced manufacturers are a little bit better on this front, but often they're not, you know, we've talked to, you know, uh, an aerospace company where they, all their code was just sitting on a laptop and they lost the laptop. So it's really a mess out there, I'd say, uh, in regards to some of these processes. And there's very little visibility into what's actually happening, you know, in these code changes. Now, the other piece of this, which I'll say is there's also been a shift in the last 10 years where you have a lot more code in industrial sites. So if you had three PLCs, you know, 20 years ago that were just running the logic of your industrial line, great, like you could probably manage it that way. But you look at a modern site and most modern sites have a hundred devices between sensors, robots, et cetera. And if you go to like an EV plant or if you go to a, a you know battery plant or anything that's going on to the level of advanced manufacturing, you're talking about hundreds of devices or sometimes even thousands. And so you just can't manage it that way anymore, but there's, no, there's a missing tool chain in terms of how you actually manage a thousand devices sitting on a plant floor all running their own code bases. And that's where we have to borrow from, you know, what's already worked in the software world to make it make sense for the OT world. Version control will get you every time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any success stories you would like to share or, or notable examples of how copy automation has made uh, an impact on these processes and outcomes? Yeah, I mean, the, the good example that we have, because it's public and they publish is uh, Amazon. So we've been working with them at their warehouses and distribution centers. Um, we're in the tens now of distribution centers with them, which is nice. Um, and where they kind of focused in and where I think they 
and that's in the case study, so I'm not breaking any uh, NDA, but um, where they've kind of come in is, uh, you know, I think they had really good understanding of their processes and, you know, where there were gaps in their processes that they wanted to continue to evolve and improve on. And so they were able to kind of come in and say, hey, we know, you know, uh, where the challenges are in our space and let, let's come in and bring in something to help us. And they called it preventable downtime in the case study. So they said they think that Copia could prevent 80% of downtime from code-based outages, right? And so for them, they're like, hey, there's a bucket of thinking about things in terms of this kind of preventable potential downtime that they can introduce some process to, to, to mitigate. And they're able to bring that into place and move very fast on it because um, they already kind of had a good understanding of the processes that were were in place to, uh, you know, enable, uh, you know, changes in, in their environment. And they knew where they want to kind of up-level and where they were seeing gaps. And so that's where we've had a really strong partnership. And again, all this is in their case study. So um, people can go look up uh, the case study if they want and go see how that works. Um, yes, I mean, and, and just the, the fact that you could do something. I've been to a distribution set center before and you know, every movement has a purpose. It's, you know, the, the fact that you've been able to make an impact there is, is pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, given your discussions with other manufacturing executives and, and managers, what, you know, based on what you've perceived and, and what you've been working on, um, the, what are those key industry 4.0 um, trends you think are the most critical for the manufacturing sector today? Yeah, so I, I think for me, one of the big things I look at, and I like Industry 4.0, I like digital manufacturing, I go to all the conferences, so I go listen to all the talks on that. But I had an interesting conversation uh, at a at a digital manufacturing Industry 4.0 conference where I was like, well, who's actually really delivered ROI, their projects, and who's actually really delivered value and just seen a big win? And everyone was quiet, you know? And I think the reason that you see that and where I would take industry 4.0 at this point and where when I hear projects that actually went well, I see that this is what happened is people get hyper-focused on the plant and hyper-focused on the value that ultimately accrues to plant level processes. Because I see a lot of people who build out all these monitoring systems and like it's sitting in a data lake here and I can't interpret it. Data lake sometimes just being a bunch of CSV files in an Amazon S3 bucket, you know? <laughs> so they do all this data gathering and then they're like, we're gonna do some analysis and then we're gonna make a change in the environment, right? But they're not delivering continuous value. And these projects kind of die out because you go, hey, every quarter we're trying to connect 5% more devices. We're doing this, doing that. And so the, pro uh, the and so I know this is a little bit general, but the projects I see that succeed in industry 4.0 are delivering value from day one, right? And have clear OKRs and KPIs that they're trying to hit. So they're like this line. And if, this, if I were to do an industry 4.0 project, it'd be like, let's take one line, really analyze it, really understand what's going wrong, where we can optimize and figure out how we can get a 10% efficiency improvement or figure out something that's like really going wrong here that we can get an improvement on and then start to spread that win. Whereas you see people trying to do these big cross-functional data gathering projects and they, they're not getting those like massive, massive sorts of like immediate, you know, OKR, immediate KPI sort of wins that they can use um, to continuously deliver value. So what we do with customers, um, you know, and one of the things that we're, we're bringing to place is like one of our big wins is, you know, unauthorized changes. How many unauthorized changes are happening at your site? And so we're building out a dashboarding solution that's coming out in a month or two. Um, but this is something we, we built in collaboration with Amazon um, as part of that case study was, you know, hey, let's just try and get the number of unauthorized changes to zero. And that's the win. You know what I mean? It's an easy win, but you don't want unauthorized changes. And if you can get that number to zero, 
great. Like you're actually already ahead. So yeah, you can start to build some of these, like, and it's sometimes it's just that simple where if you can find like an easy win <laughs> and where you're delivering value immediately, it accrues to the plant, it accrues to directors. You see how as an organizational benefit, that's a great project. And then laying those bricks by bricks by bricks. And so you have all these things, you have all this toolkit, but my question is how do you get hyper-focused on the line? How do you get hyper-focused on the plant? How do you make sure that plant folks see value? Cause it's often where these initiatives die as someone comes up with something in their head and they're like, I hope the plants can do that. And you see the people who are angry and they're like, why do these people not want to adopt this? Well, you're building something that's valueless. So that's why they don't want to adopt it. And so really, uh, you know, if you can demonstrate that value at every layer of the organization, really tied into KPIs, OKRs, into, into analytics, metrics, whatever you want to call it, that can give you kind of continuous wins throughout the project. That's how the project stays alive. And that's how you're delivering. And at the end of the day, you're actually delivering value because you've proven it. You know what I mean? So find something measurable, find something you can fix and then go fix it, you know, and that that's it. And there's the other toolkit to do it. And that's industry 4.0. I think you already touched on this in in your your last comment. Um, I'm going to ask you. You know, you, you've mentioned your vision of using code to unlock you know new levels of speed, quality, abundance. You know, disaster recovery and manufacturing. Can you you know delve deeper into how the application of code is reshaping traditional manufacturing processes? Yeah, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, and I think the big thing is, uh, there, I always say there's this flavor of software eats the world. That's a Mark Andreessen statement um, from, uh, I don't know, a while ago. He's like, there's software's eating the world, right? So software's taking over every process. And there's a flavor of software eats the world for industrials. And that's tied to a few trends. One is like the cost of actually hardware that you program has dropped dramatically. So like the cost of a robotic arm has dropped um, and the cost of the actual hardware that you program has dropped. Um, on top of that, I think we're seeing huge amounts of workforce gaps with people aging out of the workforce. And then also there is an acceleration on this uh, with uh, with COVID-19, right? So people are basically, you know, saying, I don't want to go into the, the, the plant anymore. You know, it's dangerous or just like, hey, you know, like. I'm done. Like, you know, that's it. The, you know, I, you know, this is enough, you know, and I, it's, this is the time to retire. You know, they took that as that, that was their moment to retire. And so we're seeing is, I think, I think the current data is a million job openings in industrial manufacturing. I think that's projected to go up to two to 3 million by the end of this decade. And so, whereas before what you had was this model where you had a CapEx model and you say, hey, we're going to invest in this, this machine and we do a straight line depreciation. Does that match the cost per, you know, hiring someone for these roles? Now you're like, it's do or die. You know, uh, you know, you either automate or you, your production is going to stop. Right. And so people face that initially during COVID-19 when people weren't willing to come to the plan or whatever. But now it's just a strategic initiative for every industrial company to invest more in automation because they have to, right? And so it's no longer that pure accounting benefit. It's actually a, a do or die fundamental strategic benefit for these organizations as we saw production stop, as we see people aging out, et cetera. So the end result of that is you have a lot more code in industrial sites. So that's where maybe 20 years ago you had three PLCs. Now the site might have 25 PLCs and 10 robots. And then you build a bunch of sensors on top of it. And suddenly you have 100 devices sitting there. And so your processes that were fine, you know, 10 years ago aren't fine anymore. It actually just, you can't maintain that level of production and not have ongoing issues and outages. And then on top of that, we talk about preventable downtime. More and more outages are going to come from code changes as opposed to operator error, because that's a lot more of the sorts of changes that are going into this environment. And so suddenly, you know, these look like software environments, um, as opposed to before where it looked like environments where you have just, you know, plant folks, you know, people at the plant level, you know, operating these sites and, and who have done it for 10, 20 years and understand the black magic of how a line works, you know, and, and keep it alive and keep it running, keep the economy going, you know. 
And we, we've talked about the, you've talked about the technology adoption and, you know, and, and software. And so based on these experiences, you know, what advice would you give to manufacturers, especially small to mid-sized firms that are looking to embrace digital transformation and automation in their operations uh, along the lines of, of what you, you just mentioned? Yeah. I mean, I'd say, you know, there is a, you know, separation that I see between advanced manufacturers who tend to have the resources to do some of these digital transformations and the like mid to small manufacturers who sometimes struggle with some of these, not all of them. There's some advanced mid, mid, mid market manufacturers that serve a particular market or whatever, but just in terms of like, you know, the, the capital that, you know, advanced manufacturers kind of deploy towards this stuff. You know, I do see a, a little bit of a of a differential there. Now, what I've heard, which is super interesting, and why I think it's worth it for mid market manufacturers and small cap manufacturers to invest in this, is even for PE buyouts for all this stuff. People are looking increasingly at the efficiency of operations. So I have a friend who's a you know mid market PE person who just buys up mid market manufacturers, and so they'll they'll look at three companies that are the same and be like, how many people does it take to run this same process? You know, and they'll buy the one where the number is the lowest because it's a more capital efficient business that they'd rather be owning. So if you're looking at an exit at any point, especially as people retire out, like invest in these things because it's actually going to be harder to exit if you're running an inefficient process. On top of that, you know, I do see some some degree of at times conservatism in these environments because they've done it a certain way for a long time. And so figuring out how to kind of break through that. And then, you know, again, I think this comes back to what I say, rather than looking at the industry 4.0, this is actually, you know, again, you know, this industry 4.0, you know, you have this big, big idea of this massive initiative where you can pull all this data and there's a nebulous benefit. Let's get hyper-focused. Like, where can you actually deliver, improve, like, you as a toolkit, it's a set of tools that came around in the last 10 years. Some of them are useful. Some of them are. Some might be applicable to your use case. Some might not be. Let's get super into the plant level. Let's get super into one line and be like, how do we improve the production on this line? Okay, these three people are going to retire next year. What are we going to do? You know what I mean? Let's keep it really practical. Focus on value over the process, you know, value within the processes that we're running, and then just keep delivering that value as opposed to viewing it as some you know, top-down bureaucratic you know, four-year, you know, initiative, right? Which doesn't actually ends up taking a half a decade to deliver value. I think we can get to a point where you can pull a lot of data about your production really quickly. You can even use off-the-shelf sensors. You know, there's a million ways of doing this. You can get immediate value add there, really understand what's going on, understand where things are breaking, you know, where things shut down, where the, the holdups are in your production, understand, you know, what processes could be automated as people retire out of your organization or switch roles or where turnover is, and just build a very hyper-practical plan where you're delivering value. Maybe that's industry 4.0, or maybe that's just, you know, better manufacturing process, right? Like, I don't know. But like, my point is, let's get super, super focused on plant level value add, really understand what's going on within given processes within your organization, and then drive value there. And then obviously, you know, for me on the copia side, I always think about, you know, well, basic stuff, like, are you source control? <laughs> like, you know, what I mean, there's really easy, low hanging fruit wins, I believe in all these organizations. And so don't try and boil the ocean, but try and find very tangible value add. And you can call that industry 4.0 if you want, or you can just call it running a better business, you know, um, and I lean into calling it the latter thing, you know, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, I have to ask this um, on a personal note. I mean, have you applied your background in sociology uh, to the world of coding and engineering, you know, and how has that interdisciplinary approach influenced your perspectives on manufacturing transformation? Because I, I can already tell you take it, even, even with everything you're talking about in terms of the software and the coding, you are taking it from a different vantage point than, than others that I have interviewed. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, I mean, there's a few things. One is like I sociology is like studying organizations and how to work well with organizations. I think a lot of my job now is working with organizations. If you think about a digital transformation organization, you have to be like, well, how does an organization actually go from a set of processes? I have this dictionary um, that I like bought. Uh, it was at the Capitol Hill bookstore in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's from 1860. It's three big books and it describes every industrial manufacturing process in 1860. Um, and so I brought that to the office and someone goes, hey, you know, there's a chapter on automation here. So I say automation has been around for 180 years. You know, there's something I said at our board at the beginning. So if we can do anything interesting there, you know, we're, we're influencing 180 year old industry. So it's not cloud. It's not this stuff that's been around for 10, 20 years. You're talking about 180, at least 100. I can prove at least 180 years, you know, this has been around. So if you're looking at that, you're like, how do you take organizations, many of which have been around for 100 years, many of which have been even around for, there's a industrial company has been 150, 200 years, you know, um, and they've been doing things in their own pace, you know, over time and evolving, you know, but how do you help these organizations? How do you literally work with them? And we have a cultural value internally, which is get the customer success. How do you get them to success? Like, how do you actually get them to a point where they're actually succeeding as a result of these transformations? And how do you work with the organization to get them there? And that is sociological in a fundamental sort of way, right? Because you're working with organizations and you're working with people. And at the end of the day, it's people who are driving these transformations. So I'd say that for me, that's that's one of the biggest influences in my day-to-day -day now. Um, broadly speaking, the name Copia comes from my uh, time as a sociologist, which is I'm a strong believer. It's the Latin word for abundance. So I'm a strong believer in abundance. And I think that if we can really fully automate our industrial economy, you know, and I think we're seeing a point where it's not a trade-off with jobs anymore because there's these job openings that we're filling, we can fully automate our economy. Ideally, everything gets cheaper, obviously, inflation, all that, you know, and then we're also able to produce goods that are higher quality, which can make everyone's lives better because we're more abundant, right? And so from my perspective, that's the that's the whole thing, right, uh, that we're trying to accomplish. And that's kind of a little bit where the more sociological, philosophical angle came into what, what, what I'm doing is that kind of strong fundamental belief in building a more abundant uh, economy. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, and I, I definitely appreciate the time that you've spent with us. Thank you so much for, for coming on and, and, and talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the time. It was super fun chatting.